And so it is our Father's Word that we turn to now. You can see in your bulletin as we turn to the Word of God that we're turning to Mark chapter 2. And we are going to focus on verses 15 through 17, but we'll make a bit of a running start. And I'll start reading for us at verse 13. So here, a glimpse into the ministry of Jesus, an episode from his earthly ministry. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Hear now your Father's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is the word of our Father. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. Grateful for it because we know how much we need it. For it shines light to guide us in a dark world. And so we pray that you would open our eyes again to behold that light, that we might walk in it. We thank you for Christ who is the light of the world, and we pray in his name. Amen. It's certainly true that if you look at a map and look at where we are right now, if you look for a you are here on a map of the D.C. area, Fairfax, Virginia is not located within the Washington Beltway. And that will not come as a surprise to any of you, I'm sure. We're about five miles away from the Beltway here, out here in Fairfax, out here in the hinterlands of Virginia. In terms of our location, it might be said of us that we are Beltway outsiders. But are we really Are we really Beltway outsiders, even out here in Fairfax, five miles away from that ring road, as they might call it in England? We are breathing Washington air. There are certain things that are true of this region. It's not true that they're not true anywhere else. They are. It's just that they're true around here in a Washington kind of way, in terms of the way we look at life, in terms of the way we even think about ourselves. And I was thinking of of a helpful trio here to get us going on this thought. As Christians, we like to say that God is good and wise and powerful. 
good and wise and powerful. In fact, that trio was reflected in our opening prayer of praise today. God is good and wise and powerful. Well, here in this area especially, we like to say, well, we are too. Good and wise and powerful. Check, check, check. First of all, we're good. We're the ones whose cause is righteous. And it's those other guys on the other side of the political aisle who are determined to destroy the republic. And we're going to hold yet another press conference and say so. We're good. Second, we're wise. We're living in type A central around here. Living in a community where it's practically a badge of honor to be crazy busy. But it's okay because we're wise. We've got everything figured out. We know what we're doing. We can manage it. We can manage life. We're wise. And third, we are powerful. Or at least we want to be. We aspire to that. We, we grasp for that because we're breathing Washington air. Many people are drawn to D.C. because of the power here. All around the world. People are fascinated by this region that we live in because of the power here. So, yeah, God is good and wise and powerful. And we sit up tall and say, we are too. All three of those things. So whatever you do, there's a certain pressure on us here. Whatever you do, don't admit that you were wrong about something because people might suspect that you're not good. And don't admit that you don't have all the answers because people might begin to suspect that you're not so wise. And don't, whatever you do, don't admit that you're weak and that there's something you cannot handle because people might begin to suspect that you're not powerful in this place of power. Around here, that won't do. So, as I was saying before, it's not that that sort of thing isn't true anywhere else. It is. It's the human condition. But when you're living near the most powerful city and the most powerful nation in the world, a place where ideological battles are pitched Every day, a place where you can cut the pressure with a knife, the pressure to have it all figured out. That's the air we breathe. We're good enough, wise enough, strong enough, we're okay. And if you've lived here for a long time, you can get to the point that you don't even notice that that's the air you're breathing. Like when you grow accustomed to some kind of smog, we're okay. And then you open the Bible, which has this wholesome, windy, breezy effect of blowing that smog away and bringing you to your senses. You open your Bible. You open your Bible, for example, to Mark chapter 2. And the verses that I read for us just a few minutes ago. And you listen to the words of Jesus that are recorded for us here in Mark chapter 2. And that's when you realize, or at least that's when you ought to realize, 
that the human condition, whether here or anywhere else, the fundamental human condition, the condition of the human race apart from the love of God and the grace of God and the good news of salvation in Jesus, the human condition is not, we're okay, so that we can pat ourselves on the back. Here in Mark 2, Jesus says, among other things, People are not basically okay. Jesus says, in effect, my whole mission is premised upon the fact that people now in the world are not basically okay, good and wise and powerful. And that might sound like bad news. And that's because it is. And we can admit that. But the good news is that there's good news to answer the bad. There's gospel. The good news is that Jesus did come on a mission to people like that, to people like us. He came on a mission for people who are not okay. So we're going to think about what he has to say here in this episode We're going to take a quick look at this story. That'll be our first step to make sure we we know what's going on here. And then we're going to notice three things that we can learn here about Jesus and his mission to people who are not okay. But take a look again at what we've got here in Mark 2, beginning at verse 13. As I say, this gives us a running start into what Jesus has to say a few verses later. But look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So that's what sets this whole thing in motion. Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. Here he's referred to as Levi, Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple. And when you read those words, sitting at the tax booth, at that point, you want to recoil a little bit. You want to cringe a little bit. Sitting at the tax booth. Because he was a tax collector. And the tax collectors were a despised group of people in that world, in that first century Jewish world. So it was quite a step on Jesus' part to call this man, of all people, to be one of his disciples. We read those words sitting at the tax booth and and we might recoil because of what that meant. But Jesus, instead of recoiling from it, goes to him. And calls him. And then that leads to a meal. Jesus goes to this man's house for a meal. I mean, he's certainly not recoiling now. He hasn't just gone to him to call him. He's now, as it were, gone after him into his own house to share a meal with him. And not just one tax collector but a meal where there's a whole company of them. Look at verse 15. We'll keep going. 
as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, this got people talking. It got people asking. It got people wondering about this rabbi. Because now it's not just that he called one tax collector to be one of his disciples. Now he's sharing a meal with a whole group of them. Tax collectors and sinners. In other words, people who were notorious in their communities for living lawless lives. The kind of people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. So the question is, why does he eat with people like this? They, they ask his disciples that question. But the disciples don't have to answer it because Jesus steps in and answers it himself. And here's verse 15. Here's the clincher. Here's the answer. When Jesus heard it, verse 17, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is his answer, and that is potent. There is so much in there. Listen to it again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot in there. As I said before, let's notice three things in particular that are in there. Three lessons that we can glean from the answer that Jesus gives. And the first is this, simply put, Jesus calls sinners. Underlining that last word, Jesus calls Sinners, that was the character of his ministry, and it still is, as he ministers from on high. Jesus calls sinners. And how does he put it here? What, what's the analogy, the illustration that he invokes? Well, he says it's like a doctor. It's sick people and not well people who need a doctor who heals, and it's sinful people, not righteous people, who need a Savior. And remember, that's an illustration. And like any illustration, like any analogy, it only goes so far, and you can get yourself in trouble if you go too far with it. He's not saying that sin is a condition that you innocently suffer from, the way you might suffer from a disease. No, the illustration only goes so far. He's using the physical, something's not right with your body, as a way of illustrating the moral, the spiritual, something's not right with your soul. And what's wrong with your soul is that you are anything but innocent. Whenever I get a cold, I always try to figure out which member of the family I can blame. It's a fun little parlor game you can play, which you can find some consolation. Who gave this to me? It's part of the healing process. A lot of times you can blame somebody for your cold or upping the ante for your COVID. 
but you cannot blame anybody for your sin. Not even Adam. As if you could foist it off on him. I'd have done better if it had been me. Not even the devil. You didn't catch it from anybody against your will. It is the condition of your will. So this is an illustration here. And what Jesus is illustrating is, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what he's saying here. Now let's pause over that a little bit. Let's unpack that. What he means by that is, he calls them to believe in himself as the Son of God in order to be saved. That's the call. He calls them to believe in himself as the Son of God in order to be forgiven and to be renewed and to have the hope of eternal life. That's the call. It's not spelled out here that fully, that explicitly, but that's certainly implicit in his call. And when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's not saying that there are some people out there who are righteous in such a way that they don't need salvation. No, this is a, a provocative way of putting the point. And Jesus taught that way over and over again. Taught provocatively. Gets your attention. Hopefully it did get your attention to hear him put it that way. Because the reality is everybody's a sinner, except for him. Everybody needs salvation. Nobody's righteous in such a way that they don't need salvation, in such a way that they don't need to be called by this man. The only question is, do people realize it? Do they admit it? Can they see it? Can they see it about themselves that they really do need him? And then to keep going, when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's not saying that he only calls people who are notorious in their communities for living lawless lives, the kind of people that nobody else wants anything to do with. He does call them. And the fact that he did so and still does is remarkable about his ministry. He does. But that's not your only variety of sinner. Jesus also calls fine, upstanding people who've turned their backs on God in their own way. Even if they're Turning their backs on God looks different. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs salvation. And Jesus calls them all. The only question is, do they realize it? Think of it this way. Thinking about people that Jesus related to in the course of his ministry. On the one hand, Jesus is a savior who calls the woman who washes his feet. A woman whose life was scandalous a woman whose life made people whisper. And on the other hand, Jesus is also a Savior who calls Nicodemus the Pharisee in John chapter 3, a man whose life would have been respectable and admirable according to the standards of outward obedience. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs salvation. Women who sell their bodies and religious leaders who thump their Bibles and everybody in between. And Jesus calls them all, calls us all. So that, that's, 
That's our first of three points here. Jesus calls sinners. And I, before we press on to number two, I do want to drive that home. I do want to say this to anyone who's joined us this morning who doesn't right now believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because I want to say to you, this is a message for you. Jesus calls sinners. And as soon as I say that, as soon as I put it that way, I know, I realize that to be called a sinner can sting, that can offend. It might even sound puritanical or Victorian and outmoded to be called a sinner. So we just need to get clear on what it means to be called that. It doesn't mean that you're the worst person ever, that you're the worst in society, that you're on the very bottom of society's moral ladder. It just means that you came into the world as somebody whose heart was turned away from God, and in one way or another you've lived like it whether notoriously or upstandingly. That's all it means. It's what it means to be called a sinner. And you know what? Maybe that does sting to hear that, to be called that. Maybe that does offend. But maybe, just maybe, that sting this morning, that offense, will turn out to do you the greatest good that you've ever known. Because maybe that sting, that offense, will get your attention and it'll get you thinking about Jesus, the Jesus who calls you. And surprisingly, that's when the sting can actually give way to relief. Like that song we sang earlier, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Relief, even amazement. Because that's when you realize that he really does call you. Whatever you've done, however you've lived, whether notoriously or upstandingly, he really does call you. Nobody's beyond hope. To this day, not just in Mark 2, in the episode that's recounted here, but to this day, nobody is beyond the reach of Jesus' voice. Jesus calls sinners. And that's very good news. And I want to say this as well to those of us who do believe in Jesus, who call ourselves Christians. This is a message for us as well, because it's not like Jesus doesn't call you anymore. It's not like he has stopped talking to you because you're somebody who's already come to him for salvation. No, by the Bible and by his spirit, Jesus calls you Christian every day. He doesn't call you to repeat your initial believing, but he does call you every day to trust in him, to walk with him. Because Christian, you still wrestle with sin. You still wrestle and stumble and fall and then get back up again and stumble again. We all do. And he still calls you every time to trust in him for forgiveness. To walk with him like a friend unlike any other friend you've ever had. No matter how bad yesterday was or an hour ago 
Christian, He still calls you. No matter how badly you blew it, He still calls you, even right now, in this worship service. Jesus calls sinners. So that's the first. Here's the second to fill out our sentence. Jesus calls sinners to himself. I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but now we can, we can major in that. Jesus calls sinners to himself. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly in verse 17 when he describes his ministry, his mission. He doesn't say it in words, but he does say it in actions, doesn't he? He says it loud and clear in the actions that he takes leading up to the call that he gives. Because when he calls Matthew, he says, follow me. It isn't just follow the truth, any number of ways that he might have put it, any true and sound ways, but what he says is, follow me. He makes it personal. He says, in effect, Levi, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, eyes on me. Follow me. Calls Matthew to himself. And then after he calls Matthew, he goes to his house and he shares a meal with these people. He sits and eats with them. Because he's the kind of Savior who calls people to himself. And and not only that, but he goes to them as one who calls them. He's not a caller who calls from a distance. But, but he goes and reclines with them to have a meal with them. Calling them to himself. This is what made Jesus a prophet unlike any prophet who had gone before him. I mean, if you flip back to the Old Testament, what you find is that the people of Israel, they had a lot of prophets for generations, for centuries. They kept coming, prophet after prophet. Some of them famous with names we know. Some of them relatively obscure with names we can barely pronounce. But what the prophets had in common was this. Their their message boiled down to this. People of God, go back to God. Prophet after prophet, that was their message. People of God, go back to God, go back to Him. The prophets kept pointing away from themselves to the God who had called them to prophetic ministry. Go back to God. Go back to Him. But it couldn't go on like that forever. Eventually, eventually a very different kind of prophet would have to come. Eventually, there would have to be a prophet who instead of saying, go back to Him, would say, Come unto me. Come unto me. And that's what Jesus said. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Moses never said that. Greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Moses never said that. He couldn't have said that. Isaiah never said that. Or even Isaiah, if you prefer. Jeremiah never said that. 
Only Jesus said that. Only Jesus could say, come unto me and I will give you rest. He called sinners to himself and he still does. And this too, this the second of our three points, this is something I want you to stop and think about if you've joined us today and you're not a Christian. I said before that he calls you, so you need to take the call personally. Well, what we're adding now is that he calls you to himself. To become a Christian is first and foremost a matter of coming to Jesus himself by believing in him. That's why sometimes I pronounce it Christian. Sounds funny, and that's exactly why it's valuable to be a Christian, to be somebody who has come by faith to the Christ, to Jesus who is the Christ. To become a Christian is not principally a matter of becoming religious or being part of a certain group in society or developing new habits, or learning a new vocabulary, or nurturing a different way of looking at the world. Make no mistake, it does involve all of those things and more, and thank God that it does. So we won't retreat from or apologize for all of those aspects of what it means to become a Christian and then live like it. But first and foremost, to become a Christian is coming to Jesus, to become a Christian is to come by faith to the Christ. That's the call, and that's a call for you. And fellow believers, here again, this is for us as well. This is a good reminder for us as well. As long as you've been a Christian, have you slipped into thinking that it's principally a matter of those other things? Lifestyle, relationships, habits, vocabulary, worldview. Jesus calls you to himself. And that will always be the heart of the matter, Christian. That will always be the heart of your life. And the main thing about who you are. That you've come to God in Christ. Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. By his word and spirit, he says that to you. Every day. So Jesus calls sinners to himself. So the first was Jesus calls sinners. The second was he calls sinners to himself. And here's the third of the three. It's that Jesus came for this. Notice how he puts it there in verse 17. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's something to stop and think about. We need to understand the scope of that I came to call. It's massive. It's cosmic. What it means is, finally, I came down from heaven for this. He didn't just come from Bethlehem, where he was born, though that's true. He didn't just come out of Egypt where his family had to flee, though that's true. He didn't just come from Nazareth, where he grew up, though that's true. He came down from heaven for this. Which is a way of saying the Son of God took to himself a true human nature, added that nature in the fullness of time. John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down from heaven 
for this to call sinners to himself. And that ought to get our attention. It rightly gets your attention whenever somebody's come a long, long way for a very particular purpose. Especially when that purpose is to deliver a word that's for you in some way. If I hear a knock at my front door and I go downstairs and open the door and it's my next door neighbor who's standing at the door, I'm not going to think a whole lot of it. I'll be glad to see him. Tony's a dear fellow and he's got some great guitars. But I'm not going to be thrown by that. No, I'm going to see Tony there at the front door and I'm going to say, Tony, how are you? What's going on? What brings you here? And it's likely that what brings him to my front stoop, my front door, is something relatively insignificant. Tony, what brings you here? Well, I noticed that your trash can lid blew off into my front yard again. And we'll resolve it. But what if, what if I hear a knock at my front door and I go downstairs and I open the door and it's not Tony, my next door neighbor, standing at the door... It's somebody who's come from the other side of the world. Not next door. The other side of the world. And that got me thinking. A glimpse into uh, sermon research. What is on the other side of the world from Fairfax? Have you ever wondered about that? If you were to dig a hole straight down through the center of the earth from Shirley Gate Court... Where would you come out on the other side? You won't be surprised to hear that there are websites that will tell you with all kinds of (coughs) advertisements and invasive questions. So I can report to you that on the other side of the world from Fairfax, Virginia, is a location that's smack in the middle of the ocean off the western coast of Australia. So I thought, okay, let's pick the closest place we can find, and that would be the city of Perth. Let's go with Perth, Australia. Let's go with that. So I hear a knock at my door. I go down. I open the door. And it's not my next door, Tony, who's standing at my door. Instead, it's Oliver. It's Oliver from Perth. And we'll go with Oliver because I looked that up on the Internet as well. I looked up the most popular names in Australia. And right now, the most popular name in Australia for boys is Oliver. I will point out that the most popular girl's name in Australia right now is Charlotte, as well it should be. So there, standing on my front stoop, is Oliver from Perth. I'll spare you my accent. And Oliver greets me. And what's strange is that he greets me by name. And as soon as he greets me, as soon as he opens his mouth and says anything, I say, you're not from around here, are you? You're not from Roanoke either. Not from around these parts, I can tell. He says, no, I'm from Perth. I'm from the western coast of Australia, from the other side of the world. And I came from the other side of the world because I have a message for you, Paul Wolf, with an E. So this guy, he's come from the other side of the world to say something to me, and he knows me by name. He even knows that it's Wolf with an E. 
my initial reaction is probably going to be to whisper to Christy, call the police. But then just imagine I spend some time with Oliver from Perth. And it doesn't take too long before I realize that this is an earnest, genuine man. And that he came from the other side of the world to speak to me by name with something vital that I needed to hear. At that point, I mean, you can imagine, I'm listening far more attentively to Oliver from Perth than I would be if my next-door neighbor came over a few yards to tell me about my trash can lid. It gets your attention when you realize that somebody has come a long, long way with a message for you by name. Well, Jesus calls sinners to himself, and he didn't just come from Bethlehem or Egypt or Nazareth. He came down from heaven to call. Does that not get your attention? Does that not make you sit up and listen to him? Think about it. The Son of God took to himself a true human nature. And now it's in that nature that he calls sinners to himself. Does that not get your attention? How important, how urgent must the call be if he came down from heaven to issue it? And you know what's so beautiful? To keep going with it. That's not just why he came down. But that's also why he went back up. He came down from heaven to call sinners to himself. And so he he called Matthew and he ate and drank in Matthew's house. And then after he had died, he ascended into heaven. So that as the risen Christ, he might keep calling so that he might doing the very, keep doing the very same thing by his word and spirit. Jesus, seated now at the right hand of his Father in heaven, is calling sinners to himself. And one more time, I want to say, just like I did with points one and two, I'm going to say it one more time with respect to point three. If you've joined us today and you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I said before that he calls you. I said before that he calls you to himself. What I'm saying to you now is that he went to great lengths to do it. Came down from heaven by becoming true man and then ascended into heaven as one who is God and man. And it's from heaven, through the Bible, through this sermon, that he calls you now. And I want you to have some sense of that, that that has the effect of making this call more serious but also more wonderful. Whenever God has anything to say, it's a big deal. But when the Son of God comes down from heaven and then returns to heaven and then calls you, calls you from heaven to believe in himself, that's as serious and as wonderful as it gets. And fellow believers... It's that same Christ who still calls us every day, the Christ who is God and man, the Christ who came down 
for sinners. The Christ who was raised for our salvation. What great lengths he went to call you. And, and what, what an encouragement that can and ought to be for you, Christian. Whenever you're wrestling with sin and stumbling and falling and then getting back up and then stumbling again, the Christ who calls you in those moments went to such great lengths in order to call you as far as heaven is from earth and then back again. That means you can trust the call. That means you can trust the caller. Came all the way down and has gone all the way back in order to say to you in your moments of most profound discouragement, come unto me and I will give you rest. So all three of these lessons, friends, we can glean today. Jesus calls sinners, calls sinners to himself and came down from heaven to do it. Came on a mission for people, as I was saying at the beginning, who are not okay. And I'll conclude with this. That's something we ought to embrace as a congregation here in Fairfax, Virginia. The last thing we want to be is the kind of congregation where everybody's looking around at everybody else and thinking, everybody else here has it all together. Why am I the only one who's not okay? Each of us sitting here thinking, well, you know, last week I wasn't good when I said what I said to my colleague in that meeting. Or last week I wasn't wise because I felt positively clueless as a parent on Tuesday and then Wednesday was worse. Or last week I wasn't strong because there were days when I could barely get out of bed. Goodness and wisdom and power feeling in short supply. Why am I the only one? Christian, you're not the only one. And Jesus came on a mission for people just like you and me, people who are not altogether okay. It's true. He's changed us. There's a goodness and a wisdom and a power that are true of our lives as believers now that weren't before, that wouldn't be true of us were it not for the grace of God, and we want to acknowledge that. It would be ingratitude on our part if we diminished or downplayed or denied that. Grace has changed us, that's true. But we can still be honest. We are not altogether okay. And we want to be the kind of congregation where we can admit that to each other and pray for each other and encourage one another. Thank God that a Savior who is good and wise and powerful came down and then ascended. Thank God that it's that Savior who calls us to himself today. Let us hear and heed that call. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for that, that you've given us a Savior like Jesus who came down to call sinners to himself. We thank you for your grace that you've opened our ears to hear that call. So we pray that you would encourage us with it, that we might trust in him anew.
And we pray these things in his name. Amen.